0: Okay, continuing on with GI, we have peptic ulcer disease. So it's defined as erosion of the mucosal lining of the stomach and duodenum from the hydrochloric acid and pepsin from the stomach. It can affect any part of the GI tract: the lower esophagus, stomach, duodenum, or the margin of the gastrojejunal anastomosis after any surgical procedure. Um, similar to gastritis. Um, it could be acute or chronic. With acute, there's just a superficial erosion there's um, minimal inflammation. It's usually short duration, and it's quick resolving once we identify the cause and treat it. And then the chronic, it crosses through the wall. It's a longer duration, and it's a continuous process. Peptic disease could be either gastric, or it could be duodenal, and the main cases of um, peptic disease are H. pylori or um, chronic NSAID use. So, eighty to ninety percent, eighty percent of gastric and ninety percent of duodenal ulcers are caused by G- H. pylori. Basically, the bacteria colonizes the gastric epithelial cells. It causes antibody formation, and then there's this release of inflammatory cytokines, which cause the chronic inflammation. Um, with medication-induced, it's usually primarily used of NSAIDs because they inhibit prostaglandins, which increase secretion and decrease the mucosal barrier. Um, it may also be, um, occur with chronic use of corticosteroids or even anticoagulants. As far as lifestyles, you have patients that have high alcohol intake, smoking, coffee, or psychological stress, which could contribute to the cause of peptic ulcer disease. Now, for gastric ulcers... Um, patients will complain of left upper quadrant pain. It usually occurs about 30 to 60 minutes after eating compared to duodenal, which is bright upper quadrant pain, which occurs anywhere from one and a half to three hours after eating and usually at bedtime or during nighttime hours. With duodenal ulcers, um, the pain is alleviated with food or the use of antacids. With both, the complications can lead to GI bleeds, perforation, or cancer cell formation. So with peptic ulcer disease, if the patient is really sick, such as they have a GI bleed or maybe a possible perforation, we're going to notice some abnormal vital signs, maybe some abdominal pain with rebound tenderness, the patient may be dehydrated, um, there may have been some um, pernicious anemia due to maybe a chronic um, ulcer disease or dumping syndrome where patients have abdominal cramping, diarrhea, dizziness after um, every meal. For testing and diagnosis we may check um, stool for occult blood to see if there's any gi bleed that has been going on due to the ulcer and then we can check for serum or stool antibody or antigen for h pylori however antibody testing can remain positive for years so we're better off doing urea breath test or stool tests cbc liver enzymes amylase we want to make sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable, that their liver is still functioning appropriately, um, and that there's no issues there. Um, gold standard diagnosis would be an upper endoscopy with biopsy where we would see where exactly the ulcer is and we would take a biopsy to see, um, to make sure there's no um abnormal cell formation. For treatment of peptic ulcer disease, we're looking at lifestyle changes. We want patients to rest, quit smoking, and diet changes. If they are on carnic aspirin or NSAID use um, and they're unable to stop it, then we would have to incorporate the use of either PPI, an H2 antagonist, or maybe some misoprostol to, in order to prevent the damage from the NSAID or aspirin use. If the patient is positive for H. pylori, it does require a combination therapy of antibiotics such as metronidazole, which is flagyl, or amoxicillin, a PPI, and in addition to that, some adjunct therapy with either an H2 antagonist, a cytoprotective drug, or some sort of antacid. If the patient is really sick, they may need hospitalization for supportive care, maybe some IV fluids, IV meds, and um, NG tube in order to help the bowel rest. If they're unable to have conservative treatment, they may need some surgery, such as a vagotomy, where they sever the nerve fibers that stimulate gastric acid production. pyloroplasty, which widens the lower esophageal the lower stomach sphincter um to help aid in the um emptying into the intestines or maybe a partial gastrectomy where they would remove the affected area um that is injured. Education would be small frequent meals, to eat slowly to give time for the brain to notify the stomach that they are full, monitor INOs, need for IV fluids and electrolyte monitoring, especially if they're having any vomiting or GI bleed, possibly identify any food triggers that may be triggering um, flare-ups, and the importance of medication adherence, especially if the patient has been diagnosed with H. pylori. Monitor for any vitamin deficiencies, especially if there's long-term chronic damage to the gastric cells, and making sure that the patient is following up with their GI appointments. Now, as far as GI bleeding, the formal term is hematemesis or bloody um, emesis. It's the most common cause um, is due to peptic ulcers, maybe acute with sudden onset, <laughs> For instance, if patients have an arterial bleed, it will be bright red blood. Now, it may be chronic. Um, it may cause melena, which is black tarry stools, or coffee ground emesis from blood that has been sitting in their stomach for some time. As far as GI bleeding treatment, we need to identify the cause of the bleed, monitor the patient's status, make sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable, that their clotting factors, CBC um electrolytes liver enzymes or anything else um are stable if it's a severe bleed then we do need to do a type and cross for a possible transfusion in order to replace the blood loss that the patient has had a severe bleed may require acute emergency care and then endoscopy is a primary tool for diagnosing of any gi upper gi bleed Now, for nausea and vomiting, it's a commonly reported GI symptom. It may or may not be related to a GI disorder. There's other non-GI related causes such as stress, medications, procedures. Um, But if untreated or undermanaged, the patient may end up with dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, some extra fluid volume loss, decreased plasma volume, and extreme cases circulatory failure. The goal is to determine the cause untreated and, and correct any complications and offer some symptomatic relief to the patient. Whenever you have a patient that is vomiting, we need to assess the color, smell, quantity, of the emesis in order to determine the cause. Is it bilious? Does it have a fecal smell? Is it bright red blood or coffee grounds, which could lead us to think that there's some sort of bleed? Is the food digested or partially digested? We need to also differentiate between vomiting, regurgitation, and projectile vomiting. Regurgitation is an effortless process. There is a partially digested food that comes up from the stomach. For instance, patients that have... um, spit up with their milk, there's no effort, there's no gagging, there's no heaves, it literally just comes up and comes out. However, projectile vomiting is a forceful expulsion of stomach contents. Um, These patients don't complain of nausea, the vomiting just literally comes out, for instance, with babies that have pyloric stenosis. The timing of the episodes will also give us an idea of where the cause is. For instance, patients that wake up in the morning um With the nausea and vomiting, there is a possibility that it could be a brain tumor um, if they are having after an emotional stress shortly after taking any medications post ingestion of certain foods, or for instance, some cyclic vomiting syndrome where patients will have a cyclic um vomiting episodes, for example, every four weeks, they'll have a few days of vomiting, it'll go away, and then I'll come back four weeks later as far as medication treatment. For nausea and vomiting, you have your anticholinergics such as scopolamine, which is placed in the back of the ear. It usually comes in a patch. It lasts about 72 hours. It causes um, pupillary um, dilation. So, patients do have to be cautious if they do have a previous history of um, glaucoma or anything like that because their um, pupils will be unable to constrict. You have your antihistamines, such as your meclosine, which is the antivir, hydroxyzine, um, which is Adarax, diphenhydramine, fen, uh, Benadryl, or Dephanhydrinate, which is um, used mainly for um, motion sickness, which is Dramamine. You have your cannabinoids, which is such as Drabanimol or nabilone usually reserved for patients who have chemo or who are in some sort of stage of cancer where they have like this nausea, and vomiting. There could also be use of corticosteroids such as decadron, H5HT3 H5, h um, 5 serotonin antagonists such as endacetron, trisulfran, or polynostron, the phenothiazine such as promethazine, metachloropramide, or chlorpromazine, or for and then your substance P neurokin 1 receptor antagonists, which are usually used and reserved for patients undergoing chemo. Okay, for lower GI, you have your inflammatory bowel disease, you have your ulcerative colitis, and your Crohn's disease. Those are the two um, uh, conditions that are encompassed in the inflammatory bowel disease. Their common factor is chronic inflammation. Okay, for the healthy um bowel, there's usually no hypertrophy, no fissures, no cobblestones, no ulcerations. Crohn's disease is... Um, characterized by muscle hypertrophy, cobblestone appearance, and maybe some fissures that um, may appear. And ulcerative colitis, just as the name um, describes, there is some ulcer formation along the mucosa of the intestines. Ulcerative colitis follows a continuous pattern starting from the rectum up, While Crohn's disease can have um, stop and go areas, and it can affect the entire GI system. For inflammatory bowel disease, the symptoms may range from mild to severe. Patients will often have episodes of remission or rare exacerbation. The exact cause um, is unknown, but there are some risk factors including family history, autoimmune history, some environmental factors, ethnicity, age, geographical area, and um, certain medications. Common symptoms for both include diarrhea, abdominal pain, cramping. Um, Fatigue, bloody stools, decreased appetite and weight loss, while common complications for both would be colon cancer, primarily sclerosing cholangiitis, which is inflammation of the biliary ducts, blood clots, inflammation of the skin, eye, joints, turn flare-ups, and medication side effects. Mention ulcerative colitis specifically, it follows a continuous pattern throughout the colon. It involves the mucosa and the subucosa of the intestine. It starts at the rectum and spreads upwards, forming ulcerations along the lining of the intestine. Due to the damage to in the intestine, the patient may lose their intrinsic factor and suffer from pernicious anemia with long term. Signs and symptoms patient will often complain of leftover quadrant abdominal pain. They may have some anorexia, some weight loss, some fever, multiple diarrhea a day, usually accompanied with mucus, blood, pus, or um, in the stool. And upon auscultation, patients will have high pitched bowel sounds and possibly some rectal bleeding. As far as complications specific to ulcerative colitis, patients may have toxic megacolon, which is this. Um, Excessive inflammation of the colon, Um, there's some thickening, congestion, and edema, um, and it's visibly seen in an x-ray. Perforation is due to small lacerations to lining of the intestine may occur. Body stools, infection caused by abscesses and perforation, and due to the recurrent diarrhea, patients may suffer from, from dehydration. On the other hand, Crohn's disease follows areas that can be sporadic along the GI tract, though it is common... Um, to have it in the colon and terminal ileum, but it can occur along any part of the GI tract from the mouth down. The inflammation does involve all layers of the bowel. There are periods of remission and exacerbation. However, every period of exacerbation that the patient um, endures causes some scarring to the intestine. As far as signs and symptoms specific to Crohn's disease, Patients will often complain of right lower quadrant abdominal pain, fever, recurrent diarrhea with mucus pus, or blood. Upon auscultation, patients will have high-pitched bowel sounds, substatoria, which is a fatty component of stool, which causes the stools to float. Malnourishment, um, especially if it involves the small intestine, and pernicious anemia. Complications specific to Crohn's disease would be bowel obstruction, malnutrition, fistulas, which are most commonly the perineal, and anal fissures. The majority of patients that come in may have had um, long-term symptoms, but they may have never attributed them to Crohn's disease. But they'll come into the hospital, for instance, with a perineal fistula. Upon further um, um, investigation, we'll find the patient will have Crohn's disease. For diagnosis, we need to run labs to make sure the patient doesn't have an active infection, anemia, or any sort of deficiency. Usually, you do a colonoscopy. Sometimes the swelling is too large um, or too great for us to do a colonoscopy, so patients may have a flexible sigmoidoscopy. It will only see um, that part of the sigmoid, but it kind of gives them an idea of what's going on. Now, for a capsule endoscopy, uh, the patient will not be able to have a biopsy. However, if we anticipate that maybe the patient has some Crohn's along just maybe the possible small intestine, um, the um, capsule endoscopy will be great in order to see those areas that are affected. Um, basically, it will take a look anywhere from the mouth all the way down to the rectum when the patient poops it out. Other identifying um. Diagnosis would be with x-ray, CT, and MRI. The goal is to reduce inflammation. So as far as medications, there's different um, kinds of um, medications, but they're all geared in order to decrease inflammation. For instance, the 5-aminosalicates, Um, which you will commonly see, such as mesalamine, which is pentassa, they will decrease the inflammation by suppressing pro-inflammatory cytokines and other mediators. If there is an active infection that the patient is having, then we would have to use antimicrobials. We're going towards the higher-end medications, such as cipro, clarithromycin, or metrodinosol, in order to prevent those secondary infections. Some patients may be candidates for biological therapy, all those that end in MAM, which inhibit cytokine tumor necrosis um, medications. Um, corticosteroids, such as prednisone, methylprednisolone, hydrocortisone, suppositories, or foam. The goal is to decrease inflammation. Because of the side effects, we want to do only short bursts of corticosteroids and hopefully not be able to maintain the patient long term. Patients may also need immunosuppressants in order to help suppress the immune system and hopefully control the inflammation. For surgical interventions with um, ulcerative colitis, because it follows a continuous pattern, if we are able to remove the entire colon that is affected, we will resolve the condition. Um, There's different procedures. It just depends on whether they're able to preserve the rectum or they would have to do a complete ileostomy. Now, for Crohn's disease oftentimes because it is a sporadic inf- uh inflammation sometimes they may be able to do removal of the um disease segments and then be able to reanastomose. however anytime that that occurs it can cause some stricture formation and if you do it long enough times it can cause a short bowel syndrome so obviously with Crohn's disease, we want to be able to only remove as much as we need and try not to do it very often in order to prevent those strictures or short bowel formation. As far as nursing education, um, we want the goal is to have patients that have fewer or lesser severe exacerbations in order to maintain their electrolyte balance and be free from pain, discomfort, and be able to adhere to their medical regimens. As far as for diet, we want them to eat small, frequent meals, high protein, high calories, low fiber, low fat, and lactose-free, avoid alcohol and coffee, and be able to keep a food diary in order to identify their own specific food triggers. Signs and symptoms of exacerbation and complications, um, when to seek medical attention, is important for the patients to know, follow up with their doctor, or go to the emergency room. They need to be taught about signs and symptoms of perforations, bowel obstructions, or fistulas. And in extreme cases, patients will need supportive care, such as being admitted to the hospital. Um, They may need to be NPO and on TPN in order to help their bowels rest. Um, Patients will need psychosocial support. Such as support groups and counseling, especially if the patient ends up needing some sort of ileostomy, colostomy, where their body image is going to be altered, as well as if they're having repeated exacerbations as far as how um, it affects their um, activities of daily living and their activities and interactions um, with other people. Um... Now, for diverticulitis. So, diverticulitis is the inflammation of the diverticular, which are dilatations dil- dil- and outpouchings in the colon mucosa. It usually occurs in the descending sigmoid colon. So, diverticulosis is actual the presence of multiple non-inflamed diverticula, while diverticulitis is the inflammation of more than one diverticula. So, the causes are. Not completely known, but there could be some genetic or some environmental factors that affect the formation. But we do see an increased risk in patients who have a history of constipation. They have a lack of dietary fiber. You may be obese, um, inactive or sedentary, smoking, increased alcohol intake, and said use, and increased abdominal pressure. For diverticulosis, usually it has no symptoms You may have some abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence, and maybe some changes in bowel movements. Diverticulitis usually presents with left lower quadrant pain, some distension, decreased or absent bowel sounds, nausea, and vomiting. However, in older adults, they may not present with fever. They may just present with some diffuse abdominal pain. Diagnosis is usually seen with a routine colonoscopy, possibly a sigmoidoscopy, a barium enema or maybe some incidental finding with a CT scan. Um, And history and physical will also give us some um, confirming information. For treatment, if your patient is stable, they may be treated outpatients with a clear liquid diet, some butt rest, antibiotics, and analgesics. However, the patient is unstable or very sick, Patient may need to be hospitalized, NPO, IV fluids, possibly NG2 for decompression and bowel rest, NLG6, and some strict INOs. If the patient develops some sort of abscess or perfor- perforation and peritonitis, then obviously they would need some sort of emergency care. Um, if they're having recurrent episodes or complications, it may require some surgical intervention with some sort of colon resection. Hopefully, they are able to do the anastomosis, which is the reattachment of the intestine. However, sometimes it's they're unable to do so, um, and the patient may have a temporary colostomy, and then they'll go back into surgery later on in time and then have the anastomosis. The main goal is the patient to not have any um, episodes of constipation, so increase their fiber, decrease fat, avoid red meats, um, Avoid um, increased in abdominal pressure, straining, during bowel movements, vomiting, heavy lifting, bending, weight, um, wearing tight-fitting clothing, anything that restricts the abdomen. Um, diarrhea is defined as or more stools um, of loose or liquid stools per day. Acute diarrhea is considered less than 14 days. Persistent diarrhea, more than 14. And chronic diarrhea, more than 30. Now, if we're looking into the chronic diarrhea, we're thinking of possibly a malabsorption syndrome or something that's going on, such as ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, or Crohn's. Um, The other one should have some cause that we can readily identify. The number one cause of diarrhea is due to the ingestion of some infectious organism. Usually viral, which is usually self limiting and usually mild in symptoms. Um, It could be bacterial, usually an E. coli of some sort, or parasitic, and your most common parasitic agent is Jardia. Um, Treatment we want to make sure that we're rehydrating patients using some sort of electrolyte replacement. If the patient is still tolerating oral, um, we will give them oral electrolyte replacements. However, if the patient is unable to tolerate anything by mouth, then we will need to do some IV fluids of some sort. If patient has had fever, bloody stools, diarrhea for more than three days, or we're possibly considering a, um exposure to an outbreak, then we definitely need to make sure that we're tracking for some stool culture for blood, mucus, WBCs. And if more than 14 days are traveled to... Um, a third world country, then we would have to check for stool, ova, and parasites. Anytime there's chronic diarrhea, we need to check for any um, uh, anemia or vitamin deficiencies and rule out any malabsorption syndromes. Complications are obviously most common in the very young and the very old because they're not um, able to readily regulate their fluid losses. Um, Anytime the patient is immunosuppressed, we want to make sure um, that we're evaluating because they are increased risk of some GI infections. Same thing with medications. Medications such as PBI, because they lower the production of acid in the stomach, then it also allows pathogens to be able to thrive and not be killed off as they normally would. Antibiotic use um, does kill good bacteria and bacteria, so it's important to make sure that we are supplementing that intestinal flora with the use of um, probiotics. Complications, dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, some acid-based imbalances, substance, colitis, perforation in extreme cases, and malabsorption. Our main education is to make sure that we are preventing dehydration Hand um, hygiene to prevent any transmission, especially if we're thinking that there's anything that's traveling via fecal oral route. Diet to help bulk stools, prevent GI irritation, and the proper use of antidiarrheal agents. We don't want to um, hold on to any bacteria or parasites in the intestines. We want it to be able to come out. Um, so we are going to limit the use of antidiarrheal agents only. Um, to be used as necessary and never with patients that have some sort of irritable bowel disease because it can lead to megacolon. The use of antibiotics is reserved for patients that are either very sick, immunocompromised, or are having some sort of fever where we think that it's definitely um, infectious. As far as bowel resections and ostomy surgeries, um, oftentimes bowel resections are done in order to remove a sick um, area of the bowel, whether it's perforated, whether it has cancer, whether it's um, um, gangrenous, etc. It's basically removal of the area of the bowel that is no longer functional. So stoma is an opening into the abdominal cavity. It can go along different areas and depending on the areas Um, of where it's placed will be the type of stool that you would have. For instance, in the ascending colon and in the descending colon, patients will have liquid stools, while in the sigmoid colon, they'll have more of a formed stool, and in the transverse area, it will be semi-liquid to semi-formed stool. Stoma should always be pink and moist. Appliances always have to be fit to the patient. And whenever we're replacing any bag, we need to make sure that we're assessing skin integrity, applying skin barriers and creams prior to attaching the appliance. Bags should be emptied when they're about a quarter to a half full in order to prevent spillage. And we need to monitor fluids and electrolytes. Um, For patients, educate patients on diets to follow to prevent odor inflates because now all of it is coming out. There's zero control over when and where it comes out. And then we're always going to offer support groups and counseling for body image changes. Now, for NG tubes, we're using them only um, short-term, especially for feeds. Other uses for NG tubes would be um, for decompression, especially if there's some sort of obstruction, if we need to let the bowel rest. Um, for enteral feedings, less than four weeks at a time um, when we need the mouth to rest for feeds or we need to add in supplementation. The lodges, for instance, if there's ever um, an ingestion where we need to clean out the stomach, we may use an NG tube in order to help remove um, anything that wasn't supposed to be ingested. And then for compression, especially whenever the patient has some sort of GI bleeds, so it will allow some compression to the sides and hopefully be able to stop the bleed. NG placement, we're always going to confirm the order and that is the correct patient with their date of birth any pertinent information such as history of bleeding, any use of anticoagulant therapy, any surgeries or anomalies to their nasal passages. And we're going to check both nears in order to help pick the one that has um, the widest area to enter, um, which would cause the less trauma. We're going to measure from the tip of the nose to the tragus of the ear to right below the siphon process. Patients will need to be um, with the head of the bed elevated we're going to check placement via uh, aspiration or gi context it should be less than four so acidic and checking color odor and consistency we're going to make sure we always secure the energy tube to prevent any either removal um to where it doesn't belong um to make sure it's in the correct place and always observe the patient for signs and symptoms of distress coughing sureness of breath decrease o2 which would mean that the tube is in their trachea versus their stomach x-ray is the gold standard to confirm placement um, in order to make sure that it is in the correct place Insertion and maintenance is a nurse responsibility. However, LPNs and vocational nurses may be able to provide meds, feeds, removal, and skin care. We're always going to measure the output, make sure that we're providing comfort, oral care, and that we're checking the nurse for any irritation or injury. Prior to any feeds or medication administration, we're going to check placement and ensure that it is secured and has to be pulled out. We're always gonna flush the tube as needed and with every feed and med administration in order to make sure that the tube stays pained. Um If the patient is having either diarrhea or it seems that they're not tolerating their GI feeds, we need to collaborate with a dietitian in order to make sure that we're providing the appropriate feeds to meet the nutritional needs of the patient. We're gonna assess the bowel zones with every feed, check GI contents to make sure they're less than four, Aspirate residual volume every 4 to 6 hours in order to identify if the patient's having some sort of delayed gastric emptying. Prior to any administration of any feeds, we are going to make sure that the patient has the head of the bed elevated 30 to 40 degrees in order to help prevent any aspiration. We're going to use 15 to 30 mLs of water to flush the tube before feedings, flushing every 4 hours to maintain patency um and anytime that we're doing feeds we're going to use it by gravity to help it infuse slowly and the patient is better up to um tolerating any feed after any feed or uh, men we're going to flush with 30 ml's to make sure everything went in and the tube stays painted complications can be overfeeding where the residual volume will be more than 250 ml's um, for two assessments, and then we would need to stop the feeds, notify provider, keep the head of the bed elevated in case they um, have some sort of emesis, and we're going to recheck the residuals after an hour. Patients may have diarrhea if they're not tolerating the feeds. We would slow the feed rate, notify the provider, consult the dietary, because there may be some adjustments that need to be done to a feed that the patient is better tolerating. In the meantime that they're having diarrhea, we need to make sure that we're providing perianal care and that we're protecting the skin integrity of the patient. For aspirations, if we think that the patient has aspirated, we're going to stop the feed, turn the patient to the side, and have suction ready in case they throw up. If your patient desaturates, make sure you're providing oxygen once you have an order and that you're monitoring the patient for fever, signs, and symptoms of infection of aspiration pneumonia. If you think that your patient has aspirated, make sure you obtain an X-ray order um, in order to rule that out. As far as medication administration via NG tube, we need to make sure that they are appropriate use for NG tubes. Uh, make sure that the pharmacy does know that the patient will where the patient is going to be having them administered. You're always going to provide um, verified proper tube placement placement prior to medication administration might should be going in by gravity or you may use the plunger depending on the amount um, that's going in liquid medications crush um, solid only if appropriate so make sure that the, um, the consistency is correct to go through the energy tube and that it's not getting clogged or um, it stays in there um, if patients have extended release, fluid filled, or entire coated, make sure you're notifying pharmacy and that provider in order to switch it to something that can be administered via NG tube. If there's an order for a sublingual med, patients may still get it on sublingual because it will disintegrate under their tongue, but you will not place it in their NG tube. Okay, each med. Should be mixed and given separately. You never mix it with the feeds. That way you are ensuring that the patient is getting the full amount. And that it has gone completely in. After any med um, or feeds. You're going to flush with 15 to 30 mLs. um, To ensure the tube stays pink. Okay, Um, so we're going to start with upper GI um, disorders. We're going to start with gastritis. Gastritis is an inflammation and breakdown of the gastric mucosa. It can either be acute or chronic, um, or it could be diffused across the GI um, mucosa, or it could be localized to just a certain area. Risk factors include certain medications, such as NSAIDs, diets, Um, certain diseases and disorders, environments, and um, microorganisms, such as H. pylori. So with acute gastritis, usually symptoms are self-limiting. It may last a few hours, maybe a few days. Um, Signs and symptoms may be anorexia, nausea and vomiting, some epigastric pain, maybe some sour taste in the mouth. Um, And in extreme cases, there may be a GI bleed. Now when it comes to chronic gastritis, it would be The signs and symptoms may be similar to the acute. However, um, patients may long-term be asymptomatic. Um, With long-term chronic gastritis, there may also be a loss of intrinsic factor. Intrinsic factor is produced by the stomach mucosa, um, and that's what helps the body absorb vitamin B12. So patients that have chronic gastritis may eventually have pernicious anemia. Um, As far as treatment, we want to eliminate the cause and prevent any future episodes. During the time where they're having the episodes, we want to do additional supportive care um, to prevent dehydration, especially if the patient has had some nausea and some vomiting. Um, We want to encourage the patient to have a bland diet, nothing fried, nothing... um, fatty, nothing with too much tomato sauce, and then we would have some drug therapy, some medications such as PPIs in order to help relieve um, that irritation. If the patient does have a GI bleed due to some acute um, gastritis, then the patient would need to be hospitalized and monitored, okay? Now for gastroesophageal reflux, okay, this is a chronic symptom of damage to the esophagus due to the reflux. It's one of um, a very common GI problem, and the primary cause is an incompetent LES. So your LES is your lower esophageal sphincter. That's what closes and opens um, whenever you eat. Um, the goal is that you eat, the food enters the stomach, the LES closes. Um, but in patients that have reflux, that lower esophageal sphincter doesn't close properly, and it allows the gastric acid to come back up. Risk for an incompetent LES includes certain foods, um, certain medications, obesity, cigarette or cigar smoking, hiatal hernias, um, and pregnancy. Signs and symptoms, it depends. They could be mild for more than twice a week or mild to severe once a week in order to be considered GERD. And then symptoms um, depend on the patient. It's not a one size fits all. Some patients may complain of a lot of retrosternal burning. They feel like that burning goes right through them towards their back. Um, Patients may have um, severe chest pain that's very similar to angina. It may radiate to their neck, jaw, or back. So sometimes patients will show up to the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack, um, but the pain will be relieved with antacids, which with a regular chest pain would not occur. Patients may complain of pyrosis, which is heartburn, some painful swallowing, dyspepsia, regurgitation. Um, Patients may also have a lot of coughing and hoarseness and sore throat, especially in the mornings, and that's from the acidity that goes up and irritates their airway. Same thing with asthma exacerbations. Some patients may have, if they already have a pre-existing asthma, they may have more exacerbations or they may develop asthma symptoms because that acidity um, is going into the airway and irritating and causing these exacerbations. There may also be an increased pain with position changes and with long-term GERD, there may be some um, tooth erosion just from that acidity constantly coming up into the mouth. As far as GERD complications, you may have the respiratory complications, such as patients may have asthma, they may have chronic bronchitis, or even pneumonia from that aspiration of the acidity, esophagitis, which is inflammation of the esophagus, which may lead to esophageal ulcer formations, and with repeated episodes, there may be some scar tissue that forms into the esophagus. This scar tissue obviously is not... Um, doesn't allow the esophagus to expand the way that it should, so it may form a stricture, which would cause dysphagia, which is um, if that feeling where the food is getting stuck. And the number one complication would be a Barrett's esophagus. So this constant irritation of acidity to the esophageal cells may cause dysplasia of those cells and form precancerous lesions, um, which may lead to esophageal cancer. Now, for diagnostics, patients may have um, an esophageal gastroduodenoscopy, which is an EGD with a biopsy. This way, you know, they're able to see where and um, how much damage has occurred. If there's any Barrett's um, epithelium that has formed, if the patient has already developed any strictures, um, and they may also test to see if uh, if the patient has H. pylori in their stomach that may be causing this excess acidity. Other options would be a 24-hour pH monitoring. They put a little catheter goes from their nose to their um to the distal esophagus up to the stomach area, and it basically reads pH readings throughout the entire day. So the doctor is able to know, hey, when they're sleeping, the pH goes up to this much. If they're laying down, if they're sitting up, if they just ate, etc. And then in order to monitor... The lower esophageal sphincter pressure, and there's something called an esophageal manometry, which measures how much um, it closes and how much it stays open. And then there's barium swallows, where they take a series of x-rays after the patient ingests a barium, and they're able to see if there's any strictures or any structural abnormalities of the esophagus. Patients that have barium um, ingested need to have Increased amount of fluids because it can cause a fecal impaction um, if the patient doesn't. As far as GERD medications, options include protein pump inhibitors, which are your PPIs, and it does exactly that. It inhibits the protein um, pumps from producing um, acid. Those are all the medications and then zoles, such as your someprosol, omeprosol, pantoprazole. You also have your histamine 2 receptor blockers. They block the histamine. These are your famotidine, nasatidine, ranitidine. These are also used during allergic reactions because they block histamine. Antacids are acid neutralizers, neutralize the acidity. Those are your Tums, your Maalox. Your cholinergic um, medications, they lower the esophageal pressure by allowing um, the emptying to occur faster. And then you have your cytoprotectives, which form a protective layer and barrier such as your sucrophate. These are given on an empty stomach in order to fully coat the lining of the the stomach. Um, These you do have to be careful with patients who have a history of constipation just because that layer can also cause um, um, some sort of constipation um, in the patient. Prokinetics, they increase the motility and the emptying of the stomach. This is your metoclopramide like the reglan, um, and your prostaglandins um, protect the stomach lining. That is your misoprostol. Your misoprostol is a prostaglandin, so you cannot give it during pregnancy. So before you, um, any medication, any patient takes this medication, there has to be a negative pregnancy test and patients need to be encouraged to have some sort of birth control. Your PPIs, um, increase the risk of fractures in older patients, um, also increase your risk of C. diff and other types of infections. And there's some studies that um, currently say that it also increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Your patients that are an H2 antagonist, we have to be careful if they have an underlying kidney disease. Um, and the medication should be taken with meals and bedtime. And tassins. you take them one to three hours after meals and bedtime. And caution with patients that already have pre existing um, renal calculi, kidney stones, or any kidney disease because it can make, um, especially their calcium based stones, it can increase their risk of developing more. Your cholinergics, caution with patients that have um, already some sort of history of dizziness because it can cause dizziness and syncope. And we talked about the cytoprotective, which we have to be careful with any history of constipation. So nursing interventions and education for these patients, a lot of it has to do with lifestyle changes in addition to medications. um, We would promote weight loss, to quit smoking, um, quit alcohol and tobacco, um, eat low-fat diets, ensure that the patient is eating small, frequent meals. We don't want to allow the patient to get super full because that just exacerbates um, that LES. Elevate the head of the bed six to eight inches after meals and avoid eating right before bed. Lie on the right side when sleeping to prevent that nighttime reflux. That way it's you know follows by gravity Um, the anatomy of the stomach. Okay avoid foods that lower the LES pressure such as fatty and fried foods, chocolate, caffeine, peppermint or anything like that that's just going to make um matters worse for the patient in addition to that we want um avoid patients from eating tight fitting from wearing tight fitting clothing because that just restricts um, and increases the abdominal pressure same thing with foods of extreme temperatures nothing too um, hot nothing too cold um, and drugs that may cause an incompetent les or acid production Okay, moving on to percussion. <laughs> when we're doing percussion, again, we're going to follow um, a pattern in the circular motion. Um, if you start at the right lower quadrant, then obviously you're going to move up to right upper, left upper, left lower. Um, and then you're going to come back to the last point where you started. Um the whole point of percussion is to identify areas of fluid or masses. Um, areas that are filled with air are going to be high-pitched and hollow sounding like a timpani. Um, but any fluid or masses, um, the sound will be dull. Okay? So when we're thinking um, if there's like a tumor or if there's fluid buildup in the peritoneum, then obviously the sound would be dull. Obviously, over an organ, it's going to be um, a dull sound, but we would know um, where it should be dull and where it shouldn't be. When you start with light palpation and then you move to deep palpation, light palpation is about 0.4 inches down. Again, you're going to do all four quadrants following a clockwise motion, and then you're going to go into deep palpation where you're going to move a little bit deeper. Here, we're going to um, assess organs um, such as your liver, Um, You're going to look for um, palpation of where the spleen is, any masses, any tenderness, any areas of distension or fluid buildup. Obviously, if you know a patient is complaining of a certain area that is hurtful, um, we would probably use that one. um, We would probably assess that one last. Um, That way, um, we're not triggering their pain reflex. And then it's going to be a lot difficult to assess fully the patient um, afterwards. When you're doing palpation, you're going to observe your patient facial cues. Um, Sometimes they may not, quote unquote, complain that they're having pain, but they'll grimace or they'll flinch um, or you'll see them tense up when you touch a certain part that maybe is a little more tender than others. If you know there is um, a mass already, um, obviously we wouldn't want to palpate directly over it. Um, For instance, in kids, there's something called Wilms tumor, which is a tumor of the kidney. Um, We never want to palpate over those because those, um, if you palpate them, they can rupture and they can spill um, all those cells into the cavity. Again, also, if you know that there's a particular organ that's um, tender, let's say the patient has a swollen spleen, um, we wouldn't want to be palpating over it. Um, and then also, um, you would never palpate over any surgical incision that's fresh. When you're doing your palpation, you're also going to know for any areas of rebound tenderness. For instance, Blumberg sign where the pain is elicited after you release the pressure. So when you press down, the patient doesn't complain of pain, but the minute you let go, um, that's when the patient feels a tenderness. And that is an irritation or inflammation of the abdominal cavity um, that is seen with signs of peritonitis, which is inflammation of the peritoneum um, or appendicitis. And then you would also um, pop a for the liver and spleen edges to make sure that there's no um, increased size. Hello, class. This is a presentation for GI. Okay. Um, The first slide, we're going to take a look just briefly at the anatomy of the GI system, just kind of where everything is located. Um, You'd be able to identify a patient's pain and what has been affected if you kind of know where um, everything is located as far as the quadrants. Um, the purpose of the GI system is to ingest food, to digest it, and be able to absorb nutrients. And then we use all those nutrients, obviously, for bodily functions. And then we eliminate whatever the body doesn't need as waste. You have two pictures of the abdominal quadrants and regions. Um, it is good to know, um, especially the quadrants in themselves, um, because oftentimes you'll see it referred, like patients will be like, oh, um, you know, patients has bright upper quadrant pain. So it's good to know what the anatomy is located um, and that way you will have a good idea of what um, is being affected. As far as your assessment for the GI system, you're always going to go from least invasive to most invasive. Um, you're going to start with inspection, then auscultation, percussion, light palpation, and deep palpation. So basically, we always start with least invasive because we don't want um, the patient, especially if they're in pain, um, if you start off with light like palpation and now you trigger their pain reflex, you're basically going to end your entire assessment there. Um, so, we definitely want to start from least invasive first when we 're inspecting the skin we 're looking at color. are there any scars, any rashes symmetries or one area that 's um, larger than the other? Is there some um, you know that could you know possibly tell us that there is some um, masses or tumors or anything like that. We're also looking at contours. Is it flat? Is it rounded? Is it distended? Is it protuberant? Um, That will kind of give us an idea, you know, if it's distended, like for instance, like when somebody has a lot of gas or maybe um ascites or stuff like that any masses, hernias, or any abnormal movement or aortic pulsations that would kind of tell us that there's something that's going on um, inside the abdominal cavity that's not supposed to be there. When we're doing auscultation, we always warm up your stethoscope um, because it may start off the patient if it's cold and then they're gonna contract and then you may not hear correctly um, bowel sounds or even be able to do your assessment appropriately. So normal bowel sounds are normally high-pitched. You may hear some gurgling um, if the patient is hungry or they just ate recently. You may hear some um, hyperperistalsis of movement um, called Um If you have a patient that may have an obstruction, you may hear um, like a rushes or tingling sound and then it kind of decreases or it may be absent where the obstruction is located and then it'll pick up um, and be hypoactive after the obstruction. Um, breweries. For instance, if there's some sort of aortic um, uh, occlusion, you may hear a brewery right over it. Um, you're going to listen to all bowel sounds in all four quadrants. You're going to start at your right lower quadrant and move your way clockwise. In order for you to say that there are no... Um, vowel sounds, um, you must listen to a minimum of two minutes. Um, and if there's no vowel sounds whatsoever, then that's absent. If not, you may hear one that comes and goes, like, you know, maybe very rare, very um, low.